Have you ever asked yourself, what's the best way I can contribute to sci-fi and fantasy in the literary world? If you have, the answer is simple. You just have to be Veronica Belmont or Tom Merritt and host the Sword and Laser podcast. If for some reason you can't be Veronica Belmont or Tom Merritt, however, don't despair. All is not lost. You can still head over to patreon.com slash swordandlaser and help fund their hard work. Every cent you give adds more swords and more lasers to their growing arsenal of speculative literary goodness. That's patreon.com slash swordandlaser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. And we are here at Convolution 2015. Yay! Does it sound like a full room? Sure does. All right. Because it's entirely full. It is spectacularly. Uh, <laughs> We're turning people away. We're just turning people away at the door. It's incredible. Yeah. But we are joined. <laughs> that third voice that you hear is Miss Jane Gates. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me and my beloved coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so you are you are somewhat of a con fixture. I think I've seen you at almost every major SFF con in the last five years, it seems, at the very least. Uh, I've seen you at Baycon, I've seen you at Dragon Con, I've seen you at the Nebulas, and now you're here at Convolution. Um, and I've actually been here at Convolution. This is my second year. I wasn't able to come last year. I had to back out. But yeah, they keep trying to get rid of me and it's just not working. You know, it's it's like they keep trying to shove me out the door and no, I'm, I'm here. The opposite instead. of being pulled back in, yes. you jump back in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You are uh-huh. thrust back in. It, it's like that, you know, the cartoon where the cat just has his claws in. Like, <laughs> no, I'm not leaving. <laughs> so, but give us, uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, uh, give us a background. You're an author, you're a publicist, you do so many different kinds of things in the literary world. Um, I'm kind of a, a whole hat shop in and of myself, apparently, because I keep finding myself doing new things in my career, which is awesome, but gets really hard to keep straight after a while. So, I'm Jane Gates. I'm an editor, author, and uh, just communication specialist is the best way to put it now. So I do publicity and public relations for people. I help presses set up uh, a marketing plan so that they can succeed. And then I've edited uh, a whole bunch by this point of anthologies, including the recent War Stories, Genius Loci, um, and a couple of tie-in anthologies for the Eclipse Phase and Exalted Worlds that are coming out soon. And uh, we were on a panel last night together, yes. the uh, Kinky and Geeky panel, and you told me about the, um, the first anthology collection that you really put together. Can you share with our audience the, the name of that collection? Uh, that anthology would be Rigor Mortis, and that is why I am not allowed to make jokes on Twitter anymore. <laughs> well, wait, now explain that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so what happened? I never intended to be an editor. Um, I was an author and a marketer. That was it. And friends of mine were discussing how overdone zombies were. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to be really clever and funny. Well, it's not over until someone has done a collection of zombie erotica. And they're like, that's a great idea. And I went, no, no, that's not. <laughs> we have a co-editor for you. This is a very bad idea. We have a publisher. No, stop. <laughs> oh, we have all these authors who are interested. Take Twitter away from me. <laughs> uh, but it turned out being fantastic. We had a couple of great interior illustrators work on it. It's still in print. It's still selling really well. And no, I am not doing a second one, no matter how much Patrick Hester badgers me about it. There's no, no follow-up collection? No. <laughs> one of those is all that my mind and soul can take. Always leave them wanting more. Yes. 
Patrick. Uh, what is there any idea left then? I mean, there beyond are, zombie erotica, there are always ideas. I, I mean, this was five years ago, I want to say, and at that point, we were already saying, "Well, zombies have been done. It's just what we've hit peak zombie saturation." Yeah. And yet, you look at it now. I mean, Walking Dead is more popular than ever, and, and they've kind of just taken a central place at this point. Z Nation. Uh, I mean, how many zombie shows do we have right now? Yeah. Zombie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so. Yeah, there are always ideas, and, and you know, at this point, a second collection would have hit totally different authors and totally different notes, so, yeah. Sounds like a great idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> so how what, do you, go ahead. I was just going to say, what is, what is the next idea that no one should do? <laughs> that is a trap that even I with no sleep and no coffee and no food can see coming and refuse to walk into I don't have much self-preservation I have enough to avoid that one well and, and, and in all seriousness that was a trap question but uh, what what is the next thing after zombies like we, we vampires are a bit on the decline now zombies mm-hmm. definitely are at their peak um, I think we're starting to hit another phase of AI robot uh, artificial yeah mechanical type things right uh, right right machina yes. is sort of like when you get the indie films that are touching on subjects that's sort of the leading indicator I well guess. and even things like orphan black where it's not yeah. necessarily technically robotic or whatever you start getting into cloning and mm-hmm. so i think the the science part of that is coming in where you've had the monster part of it's there seems to be kind of this frankenstein triad in sf where you have the vampiric super intelligent immortal sort of thing you have the monsters zombies and and werewolves sing and were creatures seem to kind of run around the same time and then you have the cold alien type intelligence robots aliens whatever and it, it seems like you know they bleed over with each other but it seems like that's literally kind of, <laughs> yeah our, our <laughs> friend our mutual friend bonnie burton she recently wrote an article about robots and sexuality for cnet which is, you know, once Amazing. CNET starts blogging about something, <laughs> sure, it was Bonnie, so of course she she, she manages to sneak things like that. Into she runs the ahead CNET with blog. the flag for yeah. CNET. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, but, you know, we, we covered that in Vaginal Fantasy when mm-hmm. we read He, She, or It. Um, you know, yeah. there's been a lot of discussion about the ethics around having romantic relationships with AI, you know, whether or not it's sentient or whether it's just a, a love robot. Um, where, where do you, where should we stand on that? Just looking forward. I mean, this is, this is kind of an off topic conversation, but <laughs> not really. Um, where, where should we stand on that? Like where, where do we draw the line with robots and, and sexuality? Well, I mean, we're doing such a bane up job, no pun intended of, uh, you know, human rights right now. So mm. I think we kind of are going to have to approach robotic or AI rights on a similar standpoint. If they can think, they deserve the same protections as humans. Uh, at the same time, they aren't going to be human, and it's either going to be really, really bad, or at some point we're actually going to manage to create something that can think for itself. But I mean, it, are we coding in emotions into it? Mm-hmm. Are, are we coding morality? Right. Because there, and I, I can't remember where I saw this, um, but there's a lot of talk of having robots do the things that humans can't. Um, like the the assisted suicide robots mm-hmm. in Japan, which is amazing because then you don't have the person in there with the legalities and you know whether or not that was a good idea, bad idea. And wait, wait, well, for our f- listeners who aren't familiar, can you go into that a little bit more? Um, minimally, because I'm, I haven't researched it a ton yet, but essentially, 
Um, it's a robot that helps with the like the final dose of you know, whatever the the drug is that they're taking. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that can be there and make sure that nothing goes wrong. I believe it's it's hooked up so that you know like if they're crashing or something has gone horribly wrong, they can notify people without having to have a human in the room doing that. Because whether it's a matter of wanting to spare someone having to help you die or there are issues with trust, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So, so it's letting the individual have control over the yeah. situation, but something intelligent enough to a yes. system that's not human. Yeah, yeah, that that is that is really interesting. It strikes me that we have animal rights, mm -hmm. and those are based less on intelligence than on compassion. Right? Yes. We feel like you know the animals can't make decisions for themselves in a lot of cases. So we we as the superior species mm -hmm. should step in, and people debate where the line should be. Artificial intelligence is the reverse of that, right? It's like, oh, now we have the intelligence, yeah. but not the emotional connection that you have for animals. Uh, and so it's easier to go, well, it's just a machine. And that's what so many stories have, have been yeah, about. Yeah, right, right, right. And that's going to be a, a really sticky point, too, is it's like, at, at what point have we just coded ourselves into these things? And at what point are they just going to be like, hey, I'm not a kid, stop protecting me. Because I, I do think that there's a human nature to feel that we are the most superior beings and we must take care of everyone else. And mm -hmm. I mean, if we actually do ever manage a really solid artificial intelligence, which I don't know that I believe we will, at least not in the foreseeable future, there's going to come a point where we're just going to go, wait, what have we done? Mm -hmm. We can't, we aren't in control of this anymore. And that's where I think a lot of the science fiction is coming out. It's like, well, we've got this this thing and suddenly we aren't the ones steering the ship anymore. Oh, what a relief. Yeah. <laughs> Human races needs a break. Oh boy, we're tired. We're yeah. just exhausted. We're I'm just a nihilist, away. okay? <laughs> so, that, I mean, I think that's a really good identification of a trend because you're definitely seeing it both space and artificial intelligence, yes. right? The Martian came out this week, uh, huge acclaimed Star Wars coming out. Uh, so robots, AI, that does seem to be a trend. Is, is do you think it is the return of sci-fi? Is that pendulum swinging back now? For all of the the grief that it got, um, well, actually, both of them, Interstellar and Gravity, I think, were really good signs of that because. And so there's this really fantastic quick story about Interstellar. I I love that movie. I, I do wish that he'd had an editor who'd been a little more like, we don't need lo the love thing on this. This doesn't fit with the, themat the thematics of the movie. At the same time, I think it brought in a whole group that would not have come in otherwise. But anyways. So I went to see it with my best friend a couple hours from here, and we were pretty much the only people in the theater until right before it started, and then this group of teenage boys walks in. And we both grew up in a very rural, uh, disadvantaged community. There's a lot of drug problems up there. It's not a very wealthy area. It's not highly educated. And, I mean, a lot of the kids that we went to school with never made it out They're, for various reasons. It's either they never got the education or they've just descended into complete addiction and, and other issues. So it's something I'm very aware of. And these teenage boys walk in and they start the movie out being teenage boys, like laughing and, and being loud and, and making fun of the movie. And being I just, the worst, basically. It, yes, you know, teenage I, boys tend to be, no offense teenage boys in the audience, <laughs> but they're kind of the worst. And, and it was just, I stopped watching the movie as much as I'd already seen it. And I started watching them and as the movie goes on, they started getting quieter and quieter and quieter. 
And you could see the point where it just turned and the movie had them by the jaw and was like, you pay attention to me. And it was adorable because they were trying so hard towards the end not to let any of their friends see that they were crying. And, they and, can be redeemed, Veronica. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so we get to the end of it and there's just dead silence and they're just sitting there. And then all of a sudden it was like someone flipped a switch again and they're all like, oh my God, dude, let's go to Mars. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll ask my mom to drive us there. And, and you to know, Mars? There was, yeah, and, and there was joking, but it, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. it was this group of boys who'd never really had any expectation of, of getting to go away and, and do something amazing. And then you have this, hey, farming is a very useful thing. It's okay to be a farmer. You still get to have dreams. You still get to do these things. And it, it sounds kind of weird to someone who didn't grow up in that community, but especially for people in that area because we're so close to Silicon Valley and the huge tech that there's this huge divide. Mm -hmm. And the boys were just all of a sudden like, oh, my God, we could be heroes too. We could go out and do that. And you could see them just walking out with an entirely new view of life. And so I think that right now, because things are so bad, things like Gravity and Interstellar that are, are saying, hey, there is a bigger purpose here might be getting more traction because we need we need the escapism right now or we need to draw attention to yeah. stem careers yeah. and, and get people excited about science and technology in a way that maybe they weren't before yeah. or have kind of lost some of that feeling towards i feel like too that there's there's an element of hope to whenever science fiction comes back mm -hmm. uh so in the early 70s with stagflation and the <laughs> vietnam war you see a lot of horror Yes. Of, and, and mm -hmm. vampire movies were big back at that, at that time. And then Star Wars comes along in the late 70s, and then the economy starts to approve. And I'm, I'm not... But what <laughs> correlation, like, not like causation. Here. <laughs> right? But I'm just saying, like, I think, there, I think there's something to, you know, things happening in parallel sociologically, not that one causes the other. And, and maybe that's a good sign that we're seeing science fiction as people are like, okay, we're, we're tired of things mm -hmm. being bad. We want to be hopeful. Well, but you see the same pattern now because, and this was actually part of what we were discussing with the zombie thing, was that we had this, during the Bush administration, horror started really coming in. That's when zombies really started happening. And now that we're reaching the last bit of the Obama administration and the economy is improving, we're starting to go, oh, hey, we can look out again. We can, we can build this hope. And I'm actually, I'm at the end of this month, presenting a paper on creating an interstellar culture where we're... It, excited about getting out there because it's not just hope it's hey here's something we can actually do nasa's like hey we might actually be able to have a real colony on mars in the foreseeable future it may not be big and fancy and it may not do very well but we can do this and we have the support i mean elon musk and i uh, all of the other tech moguls who are doing so much to get the excitement out there are a huge part of that, too. Well, yeah. And I mean, you talk about uh, having something that is near to a downtrodden area. Mm -hmm. Like you're talking Silicon Valley and, mm -hmm. and rural areas. SpaceX is in south south of L.A., yeah. near Inglewood and, and very depressed areas. And yeah. it's that same thing. You, you know there's people who drive by like, hey, maybe I could be inspired to work there. I could work there, there someday. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Tesla and SpaceX are both down yeah, there. Yeah, right also. there in Hawthorne. There's, yeah, in Hawthorne. Yeah, I visited that that facility. It's cool. Yeah. Well, and I don't think that there's really enough attention given to the role that people from economically uh, troubled areas get because I don't know if you guys saw earlier this year, I think, 
there was a college, just like a community level college up in Washington, that wanted that decided they wanted to get involved in uh, the build your own rocket sort of thing. And it was a reservation college, so most of the kids just came from absolutely nothing. And they cobbled together this amazing little program that NASA took notice of and reached out to them and was like, we love what you guys are doing. And they're like, wait, what? Yeah. Um, but because they, they are used to having nothing, they were able to say, okay, we can't go out and buy $20,000 worth of equipment. Here's how we use what we have around us. And uh, everyone's like, that's actually a really good idea. When we get out in space, we're not going to have endless resources. We're not going to be able to just say, hey, you know, throw us a wrench. It's how do we make this thing work in an environment where we don't have what we're used to? How do we science the shit out of this? Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Is it, it, how much of, how much of publishing, and I I'm, I'm, don't mean to put you on the spot to speak for all publishing, but in your opinion. I speak for all yeah. publishing. <laughs> how, how much do you think is follows these trends and how much leads them? I, I I mean, we get the accidental breakouts like The Martian. I mean, they just hit and everyone suddenly goes, oh, wait, that's what I've been looking for. And to some degree, I mean, you can look at the agents who are going, well, this is what we're not seeing a lot of. We want to bring more of this in. And some of the really good acquiring editors. I mean, we are so lucky right now that we have amazing editors at, at some of the big houses. I mean, you look at what Tor and Orbit and Saga and a bunch of the others are doing, and they're bringing in some really amazing stuff. And it's the diversity of stuff. They're, they're mm -hmm. able to take risks on some projects now. Um, Angry Robot is bringing in things that aren't necessarily showing up anywhere else. Um, at the same time, you have something like, say, Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy that it's just all of a sudden, oh, this is amazing. And now we're starting to see the resurgence of, I hate this term so much, cli-fi. Climate fiction. I mean, Kim yeah. Stanley Robinson's been doing this for years. Yeah, Paula Bacigalupi. Yeah, 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 exactly. But all of a sudden, it's taking form and coalescing and becoming a trend. When his story comes out of left field or yes. left swamp, I guess. But, you know, it's it's so, it's <laughs> not, when you think of cli-fi, you do think, I think of something like Paula mm -hmm. Bacigalupi. Like, oh, okay, you know, the climate has changed and it's undermined the politics and changed things. And this is how humans are adapting. And Vandermeer has that yeah. but so much else yeah. you know it takes it to a different it's it's different level completely. yeah it's a really i don't know it reminds me of like experimental soviet films of the mid-70s <laughs> kind of, which from him is probably actually very accurate yeah <laughs> so what does it take to i mean we we did an anthology the sword and laser anthology right. and we were we were happy with it but when when someone's starting out for the first time what advice would you have given us Two years ago, on the eve too of late releasing for us. Maybe for version two, but yeah, what's what's your best <laughs> advice for putting together an anthology and, and slush reading and, and going through that entire process of, of sorting through everything? I like being able to bring in uh, a few known voices to use as a backbone for an anthology, and then opening it up to the slush pile for Genius Loki. I I we invi I invited in a number of people, and I the damn book is 111,000 words. So it, I, the rest of it I had to fill through slush. And I got almost 900,000 words in submissions, <laughs> which thank God I had a slush team because that was just ridiculous to try and, and manage. I'm not, I would not have managed it on my own. I'd still be reading. Um, but a lot of it was really high quality. Like I had about 200,000 words that I desperately wanted and had to turn down 
90,000 words of that. I mean, I could I could have done two books. Yeah, we know that feel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the story that comes first in Genius Loci um, is from a, a local friend of mine who was like, I'm not going to submit this. It's not good enough. It's like, and it's like, look, you know me. She'd never submitted anything before. It's like, you know me. I'm not going to come back and, and just rip your story to shreds. Send it to me. I can, I can just be, a, a, if nothing else, a good, soft first rejection. And she sends it in. And the way I had it set up was I have a, a slush team to kind of, because I, I don't want to have, well, you just pick this person because they're a friend. Mm-hmm. So they go in and read it and rate it. And I had five people reading for me. And we did a, a one to ten scale. And across the board, hers were nines and tens. First time she'd ever submitted anything. And it's this amazing, beautiful story. It's the first story in the anthology because it opens up with such a punch. And so having the ability to bring in brand new authors um, has always been my happy thing. And I just, I love being able to, to find someone that has been overlooked so far and just happens to hit it just right. And a lot of, and one of the things I'm really proud of is that from rigor mortis on, a lot of the authors that I've been the first publisher for have gone on to be successful. So that's I think that's the most rewarding part for mm-hmm. me about anthologies. You ha- it occurs to me when you're telling this, you have a really unique overview of the process because you're a writer mm-hmm. and you've been an editor and uh, and, and yeah. on the communications side. Yep. <laughs> like there are seems to be so many different paths than there. You, it used to be very straightforward, mm-hmm. which was like, write your book, send your cover letter to agents. You know, is it is that still the best way to do it, or what what should aspiring authors be doing? I mean, the biggest thing is find what works for you. And that, that sounds like such a cop-out. But for me, I initially intended, intended to be nothing but a writer. And then I was going through a really rough period in my life. And Fantasy Magazine had an internship open. And I was like, I'm not going to get it, but I'm going to apply for it. Well, they ended up hiring, uh, choosing me. Except that the software they were using, Central Desktop, by the way, is the worst. Um Sorry if they're one of your sponsors. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I don't know them, actually. Uh, there's a reason for that. Um, and I was having so many password issues that finally they're like, all right, if passwords and formatting are just killing you right now. We need some help with marketing. Let's move you over there. And so we did that. And I was like, I'm actually fairly good at this. And this was right when social media, uh, Facebook had been out for a couple of years. Uh, Twitter was just, just starting. I, I'm one of the very early adopters of Twitter and started using it for work right away. Um, but I actually stopped writing because I looked at everything that was in the market and I was like, I'm not a mature enough writer. I don't know, I, I can craft a perfectly tolerable story, but there's nothing amazing about it. There's there's no depth of experience. So I stopped writing for four years and just focused on the business. Well, now I'm getting ready to go see if I can acquire an agent. And I have several who've expressed interest. I don't have a novel. I, I have two outlines slash kind of started that both have editors interested in them. And so I'm in this weird position now of reminding myself that I don't have a finished book, but I have all of the other pieces. I've proven that I can finish and sell products. My anthologies are successful. And so I can go to an agent and say, this is what I want and what I'm interested in without having the book. And it's it's an imposter's feeling because you do hear the do things this way. It's like, but I'm doing things, you know, that way. Uh-huh. Um, so don't don't get too caught up. Follow the rules until you're smart enough to break them and you know enough to break them. That's sort of just good advice for yeah. life. Yeah, I'm totally ripping off Stephen King. Though. Yeah, yeah. 
What about self-publishing? What about, you know, people who are like, well, I, I keep getting rejected or I don't want to go to agents yet. Like, what, what's your feelings on that? Um, most of the anthologies that I've done have been crowdfunded, so I'm all for it. I think that self-publishing is an amazing venue. Uh, I've, I've been working with a number of self-published clients, and if you are willing to put in the... <laughs> That's the air conditioner. <laughs> Or, or water. Water? Yeah. Okay, anyway. Or drilling. <laughs> or alien <laughs> or invasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Zombies falling their way through the walls. I think it's a, uh, a Dyson European dryer on the other side. Of the a Dyson uh, European dryer on there, the other thank side you, sir. of the men's room. <laughs> Good ear. <laughs> um, I, I love the specificity. Specific, I can't talk this way. Specificity? Morning. Thank yeah, you. Easy for you to say. <laughs> of the brand, too. Just Dyson. Um, but anyways, I, I think that if you're willing to put in the work, the editing, the cover design, having other people and other professionals look at it. It is every it can be every bit as amazing as anything found in traditional publishing. And traditional publishing doesn't always hit those elements out of the park either. So just be willing to put the work in and I I think people are starting to realize this more, but it's not your golden ticket. It's not just you're gonna write something one day and throw it up on Amazon the next third step profit. It's you're going to write something and you're going to do all of the jobs that the publisher would normally do for you and then you'll put it up on Amazon and maybe you'll profit. So it has every bit as much work and risk as traditional publishing. Uh, but It still has to be good. Yeah, like, exactly. People have to want to read exactly. it. Yeah. But, you know, it does offer options for things that are maybe not being found elsewhere. Mm. What it, is there ever a, a reason not to self-publish? Is it, Do you think it ever hurts you with publishers or... Um, if you put up something that is uh, objectively bad, um, at, at that point it's not necessarily good to have that on your resume. Uh, the other thing is you need to understand interaction, communication, and marketing before you start that because we've, we've had a lot of examples recently of people going on social media and just screwing up so badly, you know, whether it's a bad review of their work mm -hmm. or an opportunity that they didn't get. You do something like that, and the first hit you're going to get when they they Google you is not going to be, oh look, they've they've sold this thing. It's going to be, oh dear God, I do not want to work with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you have to you have to be a, a well-rounded author slash professional before you can get into that, where you have a bit of a safety net with publishers. So if you don't trust your judgment, if you can't be coldly ruthless about your own writing and your own abilities, don't. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like you have to almost earn a level of Twitter notoriety. Yes. Like, we're not all going to be Chuck Wendigs out of the gate where we can just, like, post bad reviews from Amazon and be like, F this guy, what does he know? <laughs> but um, it's... There is only one Chuck there's Wendig. There's only one Chuck <laughs> Wendig. Um, that spot's taken. Well, for example, I'm, I'm helping yeah. a, a neighbor of mine just, just finish writing a book, and he doesn't really know. He's a little bit older. He mm -hmm. doesn't really do social media. He, you know, he, I don't think he wants to go through the publisher process. He just wants to self-publish and mm -hmm. have a copy of his book. And so in my mind, I'm like, oh, we got to get him on Inkshare. We got to get him on this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, no, yeah. he probably just needs to go to Amazon and do like the Kindle publishing or yeah. go to Lulu and get a version yeah. of the book and just have it in his hand to feel good that he completed this thing. Which is a different category. It's a different kind, yeah. of, kind of situation for sure. But not everyone is up to the... The, the Twitter. It depends damage. on what you want out of it, yeah. too, right? I think what James describing is for people who who want who like want, want to be a to be writer, career, right? right? But you're describing somebody who just wants to have a book out yeah. for friends and family. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's okay too. 
And that's one of the awesome things about self-publishing is that you can do that. It's like, well, I, I don't need to sell this, but I've got this story that, and you know, I've heard this several times, I've got this story that my kids really, really love, I want to give it to my grandkids, I'm going to write and draw and, and self-publish, and sometimes those end up being hugely successful. Um, but it's, it is a matter of what you want out of it. I'm actually teaching two back-to-back business of creative whatever's uh, I don't remember the exact title <laughs> just just for reference I've had like five hours of sleep in the last 48 including some really bad travel looks listen so. until you said that no one would have noticed <laughs> yeah like, no you're, you're doing great you, you cannot tell um but it's I, I'm going to be talking about deciding what you want and creating business plans because one of the things that we run into in publishing a lot is like and so, I went to Gen. I was at Gen Con earlier this year. The lines for the world building panels are out the door. Business, twenty people in the audience. Yeah. And I, when we did that, I, I sat up there and I looked at him and I said, "You're the ones that I'm probably going to see twenty years from now in the business because you're learning how. It you can you can go to all the workshops you want. You can polish your writing for years." If you don't know how to sustain yourself and how to be a professional and, and keep yourself from just exploding, you're, you're probably not going to do as well. And you might learn it the hard way, but if you can get that out of the way, there are so many resources now. Uh, and so it's definitely a matter of, well, do you want to do this for fun or do you want this to be a career? Do you want to be a Chuck Wendig or a Jeff Vandermeer or you know whatever the case may be? Well, let's talk a little bit about your writing now that you're 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 back in the game. Uh, what can we expect? What do you have in the works? Um, so apparently, my writing has to be as contrary as every other part of my life. So I can't write just one novel at a time. I'm actually writing two, which was something I found out this last week, because earlier this year I, I started writing a fantasy that I stopped many many years ago because that was the one that it was like I do not have enough. Uh, it's this massive, sprawling second world thing, and I just went, I have read way too much of Tolkien and, and every, all the other fantasy that was big at the time. And so I actually, I burned out on SF for quite a while because you, you start seeing the same plots mm-hmm. over and over again. And we fall into that a lot where it's like, well, this is the traditional fantasy plot basket. So I went in, went in and I started reading like John Le Carre and historical fiction and I was just really reaching outside and all of a sudden I went, hey, this is actually a political fantasy. And so now it's it's a political and gender and uh, actually a, an ethics of warfare sort of thing where... It's about ethics and warfare. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, what? Um, you know, it's it's this race of, of beings who were who were gods in all senses of the word, screwed up really, really badly got kicked off their planet and all of a sudden are back and they're like, our powers are significantly reduced. No one remembers what we were. Those that do expect way more from us than we're actually able to supply, but they don't want us back. And they didn't forget what we did. And so, you know, while they were gone, they they left because of a war. And so while they were gone, they're like, well, we're going to build these super weapons that are basically human weapons oh crap, we don't need these anymore, we can't use them, they're too powerful, we're afraid of them. And this was something that I, I started writing the story and then looked back and went, oh my god, that I did not intend to do that. So it's, it's very much about you know getting more than you can handle and what you do with it and uh, some of the issues that we're facing now. And then 
I seem to be alternating that with a, uh, again, political uh, science fiction novel. So I grew up here in California, and in the last less than a year, we've had two type one federal uh, national disaster fires within 20 miles of my house, mm -hmm. which is a plus one that almost burned my house. It's scary, yeah. Yeah, and so I, uh, around that, I started looking at the history of wildfires and, and the firefighting industry and seeing how much that overlapped with the military industry. And then looking at a lot of the issues. I, I'm from ranchers. My A lot of my family were ranchers or farmers. But at the same time, there are huge issues of you know government lands and, and lobbyists. And there's a lot of political stuff tied up in, in a simple piece of land. And so I started going, well, what will happen? Because California's droughts are getting worse. With climate change, what's going to happen to us in the next 10 to 15 years? And I started writing this book about, you know, the firefighting industry is, is basically another arm of the military-industrial complex mm -hmm. and, and dealing with privatization and the cultural issues here in America where, uh, especially in California, because <laughs> I love California, but right now the only reason that we have any firefighting force at all is because we're using inmates. And there are massive questions around the morality of that because there are people who are getting their sentences artificially lengthened and, and they're being paid absolutely crap and they're in as much risk with less training as any regular firefighter. And so it's a question of that, uh, you know, the, the tendency of Silicon Valley to kind of wall itself off from the rest of California and wanting to split off. And it's like, you know, what, we have this, this boiling pot of issues and I, I'm really trying to pull that in uh, through the eyes of a small town fire chief who grew up and is now finding herself facing some serious issues. So so it sounds like it's a near future. Yes, yeah. very near future. I'm barely SF. I'm, I'm really walking a fine line because the hills are weird. Um, I mean, we have so many hauntings in my hometown. Mm. It, I grew up in a town where uh, it's called Old Hangtown. It's not Placerville, California, but there's literally an effigy hanging by its neck on Main Street. And it came down for a couple of years because the, the, there were people. Yeah, there are people who are like, "Oh, we're traumatizing the children," and it's back up now. Um, Characterful. Yes. Character <laughs> How are they going to learn otherwise? <laughs> so you know, it's I, there's this weirdness and this this deep deep attachment to the land that is is very much like you tend to see in Southern Gothic. Um, but it's it's a Western Gothic sort mm -hmm. of thing. So I'm trying to do that without making it not SF because it really needs to be hard science fiction. God, I why does it need to be hard science fiction? <laughs> because for me, uh, and and this is something that I discussed a while back on Twitter. There is a tendency for science fiction written by women to be seen as soft mm -hmm. science fiction, but also it's. The, the Hill communities are seen as lesser. And you, you get, oh, it's just the white trash, the, the rednecks, the hillbillies. And I really want to kind of take what I saw from those boys watching Interstellar and be like, no, this is a community that in both of these federal disasters pulled together so hard that last year for the Keen Fire, the National Guard came in and looked around and went, there's literally nothing for us to do. Yeah, the community, right yeah, the community responded so fast. Um, with the Butte Fire this year, we were running teams up into the hills to evacuate livestock. Almost a thousand horses were evacuated out of hot fire zones, and we lost a significantly lower percentage of property, people, and animals than we should have for a fire like that. 
Um, and so it's like, I, I really want to bring out the, this is not just the the rural, depressed, poor regions. This is a region that you need to be looking at to find out how we're going to deal with the disasters of the future. Um, and I'm actually, the other paper I'm presenting at the end of the month is on crisis communication and response based on these two fires and the response to them. So it, it's for me, as much as anything, it needs to be hard science because I want it to be taken seriously, but also because I think that the people deserve to have um, that kind of thing coming from that area. That's exciting. Yeah, and it's an cool. area of hard science and technology that mm -hmm. I don't think gets enough attention. So that's, I'm really interested in that. Firefighting technology is still very much like what it was when it started being a thing. And so we're, we're starting to see a few things, but there are some tools coming out of the military and the private sector that would be amazing, like 3D modeling. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you can get the terrain of something, you can start doing predictive fire models and figuring out where things are going. At the, at the same time, we're starting to realize that the preserve everything mentality does not work. The reason the drought is so bad is because we've preserved so much forest and it's just sucking up all of the moisture. Well, that's right, yeah, they talk about controlled mm -hmm. burns being really important in, in regions like Yosemite Valley. Yeah, and, exactly. And they, they have to let some parts of the forest burn because otherwise it burns out of control when when the fires do strike. And it sucks up the water, it influences the the animal life, but they're actually starting to, um, well, and there, there are trees that won't even sprout unless you have right. fire to, to open them. The redwoods, yeah. But there's also a, um, a big project with several uh, of the local Native American tribes saying, oh, you were actually doing these really intelligent fire suppression tactics for years and centuries, and okay, maybe we should actually talk to you. Yeah. So some of the tribes are working to um, help redevelop areas that, you know, the meadows have grown over. They're going in and cleaning the meadows out, and they're already seeing water and wildlife um, coming back to those areas. So that's, that's the kind of thing that I want to bring into this and go, we need to be having this discussion because we're spending billions of dollars on fire suppression and recovery. We've got to have this discussion and get smarter about it. Well, I think we have some time for a couple questions. If you guys have anything you want to ask, audience? Josh, Ian? <laughs> what is, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, you've already hinted at this with, the, uh, with getting saddled with your own idea when you didn't expect that to happen. But besides from that, what would you say is the greatest challenge you faced um, when editing an anthology or putting together. In, in case the podcast listeners didn't hear, I don't know if, how, oh. how well it's picking up. What is the biggest challenge you face when editing an anthology? Uh, being able to just be, uh, to go in and say, this is what is best for the story and to admit that I don't know everything. Uh, for War Stories, we had a veteran write a story based on their, exp their actual... It's going to slam. Oh, it didn't slam. Okay. Oh, there it goes. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Um, based on their actual experience in the military. And so we had to go in and say, well, this is best for the story. And they, they contacted us and they're like, I am so tied up in this that I can't take these objectively. Will you walk me through them? Mm -hmm. And so I did. But it was, it was one of those things where it's like, well, this works from the story perspective, but this is how it actually happened in the, the scenario. We need to go with the authenticity over the the better story for that thing. And you have to be able to make those kind of calls and go, well, maybe I don't know as much as I think I do. Um, 
So my wife is a big uh, vampire fan, so I was wondering what happens to the tropes in decline in kind of slumber mode? Is there an old tropes home? (laughs) What happens to the tropes in decline? (laughs) Like, are they still going to be writing vampire books? Oh yeah, I, I mean, you have... You always have some of everything, and it's just that sometimes one will explode out and you'll get Twilight, and then you'll get all of the things trickling down from that, and then you'll reach saturation, and you'll still have a few people, and it's, it's actually kind of good for the market when you, heat, when you hit saturation, because then people are like, I'm not going to buy a vampire book unless it's amazing and does something I've never seen before, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, I, there, there are these vampire books that are doing brand new things. This is awesome. So I think it's actually good when you get kind of the tail end of, of a saturation point. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, when we did the Sword and Laser Collection Contest on Inkshares, uh, the top book was called An Unattractive Vampire. And it was it was basically kind of turning that trope on its head mm-hmm. and being like, what happens when you're the ugly vampire in the crew and every, <laughs> all your friends are like really good looking? And it's a humorous story. It didn't we We didn't pick it because vampires kind of don't really fall in the sci-fi or fantasy realm, so it's kind of like an in-between genre, but it still is being published, and it's a fantastic uh, premise for a story. Um, So yeah, you can see that already kind of starting to happen in a lot of ways, people taking those tropes and and flipping the script a little bit and and playing with them. Yeah. I like the idea of an old tropes home. Old tropes home. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm actually working on an anthology right now with Monica Valentinelli where we're taking the idea of tropes and we're having people write stories that subvert them. Oh, great. <clears throat> we have a couple of... Are you going to call it Old Tropes Home? <laughs> no, but I really wish we yeah, had. <laughs> we give that to you. Yeah. <laughs> Go email her and be like, I know we've committed to this on several <laughs> levels. We've already but printed the covers, but... <laughs> um, but it's, it's really fantastic. <laughs> um, we have stories from Nisi Shaw and Maurice Broadus. Uh, Alyssa Wallen did an absolutely beautiful story set in San Francisco in the immigrant community. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. And then uh, next year's major dream project is a collection of uh, Not the Hero's Tale. Basically, the Hero's Tale works for a very small splinter of the world. What are the other, you know, what what is the hero's journey for a woman? What is the hero's journey for a man from the Middle East or from, you know, this small isolated pocket? What are what are the tales that we're not talking about? So, I, I love that kind of thing. Like the Mirage mm-hmm. is one of my favorites now. Uh, the, you know, Shakespeare rewrites of the Star Wars yes. movies. <laughs> like anything that just like takes those things and turns them and gives you a different perspective. Yeah, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the, the forerunner yeah. of this. Right. Yeah. All right, I think that about wraps it up. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Sword and Laser at Convolution 2015. Uh, where can everyone follow your work online, Jame? Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter as at Jame Gates, and that's spelled J A Y M G A T E S. No, I'm not related to Bill Gates. Um, Do you get that a lot? <laughs> oh my god, I get that so much. Really? It's so bad that my family has the this thing that we can just snap out. We got some of the brains, all of the looks, none of the money. <laughs> <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah, um, and I can also be found on the World Wide Web as just jamegates.com. 
Fantastic. And thank you guys for coming here to come. Yeah, thank you guys. Massive, wonderful audience. <laughs> All right. Have a good. Oh, right. Okay. I need to do an actual closing. To the I guess show. so. Right. I guess so. That would be the, the right thing to do. Uh, you can follow us at Sword and Laser on Twitter. Swordandlaser.com is our website. All of our discussions happen over on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 4157SWORD6. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Audio program so good, it's like you're there!